you to our musicians uh, for putting in a long morning on Sunday mornings. Um, they're here quite early, um, well before I get here, and they prepare and lead us, and then they do it all over again at 11 o'clock. And so uh, just special thanks to them. Uh, also to the sound people, um, Greg and Jason, and then also to, to Mark and Karen. Um, and others who are cleaning in between. Um, they are very faithful and here, and uh, no grumpiness, no complaining. They, they know they're serving the Lord and serving you, and so um, they are um, doing a wonderful job of that and, and serving us all. So try to thank them. They don't do it for the thanks, but uh, thank and appreciate them, and uh, I certainly am. Um, before we get to James, I just wanted to let you know, we, we obviously are in the last few passages in this book, and uh, after we we finish this up, um, we're going to be doing a, a short series, a topical series, I think probably about three weeks long, maybe four, but I think three, uh, on the gospel, on what is the gospel. And so I want to just try to make that as clear as I can and explain that to you and work through that. And uh, I'm really excited about that. Um, as you're considering that series and thinking about jumping into that, um, I would encourage you to think about this question. As you think about the gospel and what it is, think about the gospel that Jesus preached. What was Jesus preaching in Mark and Matthew when it says he came preaching the gospel of the kingdom? That may be a little different than what you and I typically think of as the gospel. And so I want you to think about that, consider that, maybe even do some research and some reading on that. And I'm excited to jump into that topic and, uh, and consider that together. I think it'll be uh, encouraging and, and uh, foundational for you uh, as we, we get into that topic. But you can open up to James 5. Um, that's where we're going to be this morning, just in, in one single verse. James chapter 5. I don't know about you, um, but I've never, I've never personally had to uh, testify in a courtroom. Um, I've been called into jury duty and uh, masterfully got out of that <laughs> um, when I was in California. Uh, and uh, so I've never had to testify in a courtroom, never had to do a deposition before. Um, my wife has had to uh, testify in a deposition from her nursing days back in, uh, in Greenville, South Carolina, actually. Um, I would be terrified if I had to testify in any sort of a deposition or trial. I'm sure maybe some of you have had to do that before. Um, if you testify in a deposition, it's not in a courtroom, but it's, it's very similar in a lot of ways. Um, you know, your, your lawyer and their lawyer are there, and you, you have to answer questions. And before you answer questions, of course, you have to state an oath that you are going to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, right? You have to raise your hand and swear to do that. If you give that oath and then you lie while you are under that oath, there are serious consequences for that. And the reason for that is because our entire justice system is built around this goal of giving equal and fair treatment to every person, regardless of you know, color, creed, or whatever, you, uh, economic status, every person, the goal, the ideal is to give them equal and fair justice. And you cannot have justice without people speaking the truth. You can't have people lying under oath and making things up or manipulating their words in order to, um, to change the outcome of the trial. It's, it's not just at that point. 
And so whatever you say, whether you're being deposed or whether you're in a courtroom, and the way you answer questions is important to the case and to the fate of the person who's going to be tried in, in that particular trial. Now, for believers in Christ, it's vital, it's important, it should be natural for us as followers of Christ to, to have a passion for truth, whether we're under an oath in a deposition or a courtroom or not. We ought to be people that pursue truth and want to speak truth and, and value truth in every area of life. It doesn't require us to put our right hand up and, and say we're going to speak the truth in order to be people who love the truth. And so today, we're going to look at one verse of Scripture, James 5.12, and in this verse, James is going to make it very clear that we need to be people who are mature, whole, spiritually. And part of that maturity and spiritual wholeness is being people who are passionate about the truth. Our yes is yes and our no is no, as James will put it here. Now, of course, in the, the entire book of James has been teaching us to pursue wisdom. I mean, the title of the series we're going through is Wisdom for Wholeness. And our wisdom is supposed to lead us to spiritual completeness and wholeness and maturity. And a major piece of that wholeness is the way we use our words, the way we speak. James has hit on this topic over and over again. It's, it's sprinkled throughout the book, our words and our speech. And he's going to do it again in this passage here. And he's basically going to tell us we have to be people who are wholly given over to the truth. We need to be people who are wholly given over to the truth so that others can trust what we say when we say it. It's an outworking of our, of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So James 5.12, in this single verse of scripture today, we're going to see three steps to pursue wholeness in our speech. Three steps to pursue wholeness in our speech. And I'm going to, there we go. Three steps to pursue wholeness in our speech. The first one of these is to avoid deceitful speech. That makes sense, right? It seems clear enough. But before we get into the specifics of this command, I want you to notice in verse 12 how James begins this. He says, but above all, my brothers. And he's obviously addressing believers in Christ. He's gone back to this phrase, my brothers, which he did again in verse 7. And he begins it by saying, above all, which is sort of an interesting way to introduce the command that he's going to give here. Now, I think he's doing a couple of different things when he says, above all. First of all, I think he's, he's indicating that this is the conclusion of the book. So he's, he's drawing everything to a conclusion, and there's going to be basically three more sections that James is going to give us, and this will take us through the end of the book here. Obviously, today he's going to address our words and our speech, and then next week you're going to see in verses 13 through 18, he's going to talk about prayer specifically. And then in the final two verses, he's going to address how we deal with sin and how we confront sin within the church or within the Christian community. And so in some ways, James is simply drawing the book to a conclusion by saying, above all, these are important topics he's going to end with. But I also think what he's doing here is he's sort of bringing all of the passages in this book that have to do with our words to a conclusion. He's summarizing them and kind of bringing them to their climax or, or to their peak here. And he's been quite clear throughout this book that our words have a significant impact on our spiritual wholeness. 
I mean, if you flip back to James 1.27, this is quite clear. You cannot claim to be religious or to be a follower of Christ and, and not understand how your words impact that. Verse 26, actually. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religious religion is worthless. I mean, you can't have a, a split uh, personality when it comes to your words and to what's in your heart. You can't claim to be religious and a follower of Christ and then use your words in ways that are not fitting for, for that claim. James chapter 3, there's a whole section that deals with our words, but I just want to remind you of the importance of your words in what James says here. James 3, let's start in verse 5. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing, my brothers. These things ought not to be so. We shouldn't be split in how we use our words, claiming to bless the Lord and blessing the Lord, and at the same time cursing those who are like him, who bear his image. So James, I think, would say our words are like a thermometer that indicate the level of spiritual wholeness that we have and that we're pursuing. Someone actively growing in spiritual maturity will be someone who is passionate about the truth and about using their words to speak and hold to the truth. And you can flip back over to James 5 if you turned the page there. But at first glance, when you look at James 5.12, this command that he gives here seems unapplicable to us, right? Look at it. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. This doesn't seem like it has a lot to do with me or you today. I, I don't know that I've ever sworn by heaven or earth. I'm not in the habit of regularly making oaths. That's not what, what I do. Think I'm probably good to go, right? And well, no, before you dismiss this and sort of skip over it and think James isn't addressing us, let's try to get behind what he's, he's actually talking about here and, and what he's speaking to. What is he actually concerned about? Well, the first thing I would say is, just so it's clear, James is not talking about using four-letter words here. <laughs> you, can, you can address that topic in other passages of Scripture, but he's not talking about swearing and using four-letter words. I think that's pretty clear just wanted to make it obvious. What he's talking about here is a practice that was common in this day of taking an oath. And when you would take an oath, you would invoke the divine or some transcendent reality to, to give weight to your words and to, to help someone to trust you and to, to believe what you're saying. You would reinforce the truthfulness of your words by invoking God or some, some transcendent reality. So, this could also include calling for divine punishment if I don't do what I'm saying I'm going to do. So it might be something like this. May God cast me into eternal punishment if I don't follow through on this, if I don't do what I'm saying. 
Or you could say, I swear by the throne of God that I will do this, right? And the reason you do that is to, to try to give forcefulness to your words and to, to help someone to believe you. This is pretty common at this time. So, so why is this problematic? Well, it's problematic because of the way people used oaths at this time. Oaths are not in and of themselves forbidden by Scripture. If you read in the Old Testament, you'll see very quickly that uh, oaths were fine. You could, you could give an oath, but you had to be very careful to fulfill it. They were not forbidden. There's some indication that the Lord Jesus used or testified under oath before the Sanhedrin. The Apostle Paul, at times, does this very thing. He invokes the Lord or some divine reality, transcendent reality, in order to buttress his words and to give to reinforce his words. And so the problem here is not actually making an oath or swearing by something. The problem is, is a little bit different than that. And so what, what would happen during this time is that maybe Jews in particular would make an oath and they would do it in such a way as to sort of wiggle out of it. And they would want you to believe what they're saying and they would say things as if they're true and as if they're going to follow through on this, but then they would, they would say, well, that wasn't actually a binding oath. And so they would want you to believe it and then they would wiggle out of it. And so what would happen is, in the Old Testament, the Jews couldn't make an oath based on the name of the Lord. They felt like they, that was something they couldn't do. James, or I'm sorry, Leviticus 19, 19 verse 12, you shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of the Lord your God. I am the Lord, right? So that's pretty clear. But what they would do is they would try to get around swearing by God's name by taking an oath based on heaven or earth or the temple or the gold in the temple or, or something else that was connected to the Lord but, and seemed to have weight to it. But they could say, well, it wasn't actually an oath. It wasn't binding because I didn't, you know, I didn't... Uh, it's not the Lord that I took this oath by. It wasn't binding. And so Jesus actually condemns the Pharisees for this very practice. Um, in Matthew 23, he says, Woe to you, blind guides, who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. And so what's happening is they're sort of giving... Um, different types of oaths and saying some of them are binding and some of them are not binding. And so they're deceiving people with their words, even though they're claiming to be truthful and claiming to, to want the truth here. They're promising something and then squeezing out of it by saying the oath was illegitimate. So this whole system is built on deceit, on speaking words that are going to deceive another person, even though they have the appearance of truthfulness. And so James is saying here in verse 12, don't use your words in this way. 
Do not be a person who speaks with the intention to deceive or a person who can't be trusted in what they say. Instead, you and I as followers of Christ who are pursuing walking in wisdom and wholeness need to be people whose words can be trusted. We speak with integrity. We say what we mean. Our yes is yes and our no is no. And that brings us to our second step, which is the heart of this passage. I think I need new batteries in this. Three steps to pursue wholeness in our speech. First of all, avoid deceitful speech as the example of the oaths here. Secondly, aim for integrity in speech. James has given us a prohibition at the beginning of verse 12. Don't do this. And now he gives us a positive quality or a positive virtue that you and I have to put on as followers of Christ, as people who are pursuing wisdom. And he wants us to be passionate about the truth in every area of life. Look at verse 12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no. I'm sure you've heard this before if you've read the Gospels because the Lord Jesus addresses this very topic. And I think James is pulling from what he has heard his brother teach. And he's explaining it in a slightly different way, although it's pretty obvious that he's drawing from this. Look at Matthew chapter 5 here. Again, you've, this is in the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black, but let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. The heart of this passage is the command that the Lord gives in the very last line. Let what you say. That's the imperative in this text. And he says, let it be simply yes or no. This is to be what your speech is characterized by. It needs to be forthright, honest, and true. Now, I'm going to ask you to sort of put down your mental guard here for a minute and just just honestly, as best you can, out of a desire to grow, reflect on integrity in speech. Integrity in speech and communication. And I want you to think about this because of the the cultural soup that we exist in that is shaping us and forming us away from being people of truth. There are some Christians in particular, and others as well, who are calling our society a post-truth age or a post-truth culture. Why are they saying that? Well, it doesn't mean that truth doesn't exist anymore and we've sort of moved past truth, but when when they use that term to describe our culture today, what they're saying is it doesn't really matter to most people. Honest to goodness, most people really, when you get down to it, do not care if something is true or not. Most people only care if it gets my point across or my agenda or my desires. 
And so the truth isn't really that important. If I can get what I want or my side can get what we want, I will manipulate. I am willing to manipulate a story or ignore it completely (laughs) if it cuts across the grain of what I want to be true, what I already believe to be the case. And so in our culture, everybody is playing loose and fast with facts and with honesty. They're doing it because it gets them around having having to be straightforward, having to, to face uncomfortable realities, expectations. And here's the thing for us as believers, we all play a role in this. It's easy to talk about the culture out there, but we're a part of that. We exist in that culture and we play a role in devaluing integrity of speech. We participate in it. And this is not a problem only in one political party. And that should matter for us as Christians. This is what James is exhorting us to here to be people who are passionate about the truth in whatever arena it comes in. And so let me get up in your grill for a minute here, all right? Nine o'clock on Sunday morning. When you and I stop caring about truth in the public square, we stop requiring those in authority to speak the truth in the broader culture, we begin to think it's okay to tinker with facts as long as our side wins, when we begin to think that, we're doing exactly what James forbids here. We're speaking with the appearance of truthfulness. We're claiming we want truthfulness. But then we sort of wiggle out of it. Well, yeah, but they're way worse than we are. And so, yeah, it wasn't exactly 100% right, but at least the right side's winning. This is exactly what James forbids here for believers. And I get it, right? It's difficult. It's hard. You and I have a tidal wave of information coming at us all the time. And so a lot of it's contradictory. It's so hard to figure out what the, the truth is and what the facts are because everyone's presenting things as if they're facts. So how do you determine what is true? And this is why, as believers in Christ, it takes wisdom. It takes the cultivation of wisdom. It takes patience. And it takes grace to sort through all of this information. And we won't always get it right. I understand that. But the sheer volume of information coming at us every day means that you and I have to be particularly slow and careful with how we handle that information, how we share it with others. We have to be people who love the truth and long for the truth in every area of life. Now that matters, and I talk about the broader culture and the public square and all of that because that influences us, but this is particularly true for us within the body of Christ and with one another. We have to be people who are passionate about the truth in all of our interactions, not just in what we share on social media or what we think about politics or or some public issue, but this matters in our relationships with one another. Let your yes be yes and your no no in how you communicate and how you talk about other people within the body of Christ. I want you to listen this morning. I'm going to read an extended section of the Westminster Catechism regarding the ninth commandment in the Ten Commandments. So the ninth commandment, if you're not clear on that, is to not bear false witness. Second to the last one prohibits bearing false witness against your neighbor 
But what's interesting about the Ten Commandments is they're, they're stated in the negative, don't do this, don't murder, don't do this, but they're always protecting, or most of them are stated that way, but they're always protecting something positive. So the command not to murder indicates that you and I should value life. And so the command to not bear false witness, the flip side of that is we should be people who are passionate about the truth. We want to be honest. We want there to be integrity in our speech. And so this question gets at that positive side of the prohibition to bear false witness. Question 144, and this whole thing is actually on the the sermon reflection questions out in the lobby. Um, So don't feel like you have to burn your hand out trying to copy all this down. You can find it out there. Question 144, what are the duties required in the ninth commandment? Answer, the duties required in the ninth commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man and the good name of our neighbor as well as our own. Appearing and standing for the truth. And from the heart, sincerely, freely, clearly, and fully speaking the truth, and only the truth, in matters of judgment and justice, and in all other things whatsoever. The duties, I'm going to go back and read it because this is quite a list. The duties required in the ninth commandment are a charitable esteem of our neighbors, loving, desiring, and rejoicing in their good name, sorrowing for and covering of their infirmities, freely acknowledging of their gifts and graces, defending their innocency, a ready receiving of a good report and unwillingness to admit of an evil report concerning them, discouraging talebearers, flatterers, and slanderers, So to be a person who is passionate about the truth, who obeys the ninth commandment, I actually have to be someone who discourages gossip and discourages people who bring juicy tidbits to me. And I shut that down. I want the truth, but gossip is not the truth. Discouraging talebearers, flatterers, and slanderers, love and care for our own good name and defending it when need requireth, keeping of lawful promises, studying and practicing of whatsoever things are true, honest, lovely, and of good report. Over and over again in the Bible, Scripture promotes truth and promotes honesty. And does it in a way that teaches us that it is wise and fitting for followers of Christ. I'm going to show you a few Proverbs that that teach this. Proverbs 4.24, put away from you crooked speech. Crooked speech. It's not straightforward. It's not honest. It's not your yes is yes. It's manipulating. And put devious talk far from you. Proverbs 8, 6 through 8. Hear, for I will speak noble things, and from my lips will come what is right, for my mouth will utter truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are righteous. There's nothing twisted or crooked in them. Proverbs 12, 19. Truthful lips endure forever, but a lying tongue is but for a moment. Proverbs 23, 23. I love this. By truth. Do not sell it. Buy wisdom, instruction, 
and understanding. Spend everything you have to be someone who's passionate about the truth and about integrity in your speech. Now, of course, in the book of James, in James 5.12, why is James addressing this? Because he wants us to be people who are spiritually whole, spiritually complete, spiritually mature. And those who have integrity in their speech are not fractured. There's not crookedness. There's not a division between what they say and the truth. They're honest. They aren't hypocrites. They're not people who claim to love the truth and claim to want the truth and then bear false witness or deceive. When they say yes, they mean it. They're honest. When they draw attention to information, they've done their best to thoroughly vet it. They want to become a reliable source so that if they don't know the answer, they say, I don't know. I'll work on that for you. They want to become a trusted voice. Someone who when they speak, people listen because they're honest and straightforward. And they do this because of the last step to wholeness of speech, the end of of verse 12. So they avoid deceitful speech, they aim for integrity in speech, and then lastly, they acknowledge their accountability before God. Look at verse 12. Let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. And this seems a little over the top, I think. A little bit of uh, crookedness in my speech is hardly deserving of condemnation, you might think. But James has been pretty clear throughout this book that he, he wants to hold us accountable before the Lord for the way we use our words and for, for other things as well. There have been three specific areas where James has called for judgment or condemnation in this book. Back in chapter 2 and verse 13... He says that there will be judgment for those who don't show mercy. They're not merciful people. In chapter 5, the very chapter we're in, back up in verse 9, we saw this last week. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. And third, here, those who lack integrity in speech, there will be condemnation for them. Now, James pinpoints all of these areas because the sin present in each of these areas is uh, is opposite of a virtue and a quality that, that wholeness requires of us. So to grow in spiritual wholeness, we can't, we can't be characterized by these sins. We can't give ourselves to them. Instead, we put on the virtue that is the opposite of these sins. So what is that? Well, he wants us to be merciful to those who are poor. And the one who lacks mercy toward the poor, that person has failed to reckon with God's mercy in their own lives. They haven't properly appropriated the grace and the mercy that they have received. And the one who grumbles, as he said in, verse, in 5 verse 9, is incapable of patiently waiting for the Lord, trusting the Lord. They're not actively living in faith that God is good and God is sovereign. And so here, the one who who sort of toys with their words and manipulates and deceives with their speech cannot love the truth 
and cannot properly love the God of truth and represent him. And that's really the bottom line here. Those who have been transformed by grace, those who have been given new life in Christ, are meant to be people who have integrity in speech. And that's true because the Lord is the truth and we follow the God of truth. Now this is challenging, I think, especially in our day and age, but I'd like to end our time this morning by reading you a really short little prayer that I saw this week uh, that uh, Tim Keller put out on social media, ironically enough. And I found his, his prayer to be really, really helpful. I think I have it on the screen here. Make my words honest and true. I love this. Economical and few. That's, that's my problem most of the time. It's just, it's just too much, right? End up in the wrong place because I speak too much. Make my words honest and true, economical and few, wise and well-chosen, calm and kind. Give me so much love and grace that this kind of conversation comes naturally to me. Amen. And I think that's a prayer that we can all pray as the grace of God works in our lives to be people who are more and more committed to integrity in speech and honesty for the good of our own lives and for the good of our church body. And ultimately, I think the good of our culture too as well. And so I would encourage you to pray that prayer this week. Pray it every day and let the Lord shape you to love integrity and to love truth more and more. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for for your truth. It is so difficult today to understand what what is true, what is right, what is honest. And yet we have your word to us. We have an entire book of truth. And so I pray that we would fill our minds with this, this book, fill our minds with the truth of your word. Give us the wisdom and the grace, the insight that we need to be people of the truth. Help us not to use our words in a way that deceives and manipulates and is dishonest, but help us to, to have our yes be yes and our no be no. Particularly in how we deal with one another. We thank you that you are the God of truth. And I pray that you would form us to be spiritually whole people who love the truth. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.